Thursday, September 21st. Welcome back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast. Got Matt Norlander here with me, and we are now 50 days away, exactly 50 days away from the start of the 2017-18 college basketball season. Tip-off just right around the corner. Norlander has something up on the site uh, right now, a primer of sorts, so make sure to check that out. Uh, did that little project get you fired up? We're, we're not too far away from tipping things off, huh? You know, GP, I got to be honest, it actually did, and... Um... We're just we're approaching preseason and preseason. Listen, it's definitely it's a it's a lot on our plate because you, you do a lot of research, checking in with coaches. You know, I'll be honest. Like you know, sometimes if we're just I, we gotta look into a certain league or whatever. You just wanna you know just double check, triple check things, and there might be a team or two you might not be totally up on and check out roster stuff. So I actually really enjoy. Even though it's plenty of work, I really enjoy that process, and it does inherently get me amped up and psyched up. So, yeah, um, check out this podcast. Be sure to check that out. It's some facts, a few you know pieces of opinion, a couple anniversaries this year, a lot of Kansas-related anniversaries. It's been 30 years since Danny and the Miracles. It's been 15 since Syracuse beat Kansas in the title game. Those two teams will actually play each other this season in December, and then it's been it's, it'll be 10 years come April, so this season is the 10-year anniversary of Chalmers for the tie, and uh, yeah, so there's plenty of uh, intriguing things about this season to come, but I tried to hit on some stuff, like, because we always do the 68 things at the start of the season, you usually take that, so I tried to do some stuff that wouldn't, like, you know, totally cross over and things that you'll hit, but it definitely, it uh, it got me amped, and if, uh, if you're really kind of starving for college basketball to start, give that a read, I think it'll uh, satiate you until we get closer to the middle of October. Chalmers for the tie, is that one of the most famous college basketball calls in history now? Chalmers for the tie is definitely it's got to be top 10 easy you've got um Wittenberg uh 83 you've got I'm trying to think of like the memorable calls you've got I'm just saying where you remember the words like those are Jim Nance's words Chalmers for the tie right and you've got uh well yeah that's probably top five even I feel like Jenkins see what's hard is in the past like seven eight years I've been at the title game, so I don't have that like instant connection of watching it uh, on TV. Like for example, I, I think the most recent, the most recent call in a tournament game that I watched on television that I can still remember the announcer is Farouk Manesh, right. and it was I, I, it might have been Dan Bonner, uh, but are you kidding me with that shot? Right. Like, that's that's a very memorable sequence in part because Kansas was I believe the overwhelming favorite in that tournament uh and you and i was a was a nine seed but uh chalmers for the tie yeah when it comes to title games that's got to be up there and as you astutely pointed out on twitter after i teased that last night pj dozier for the championship no, hashtag, Ro- robert not, dozier not, not quite uh not quite gordon hayward from half court there <laughs> it was just a little bit off <laughs> so chalmers for the tie is immediately followed by Dozier at midcourt for the championship, and then it like it like he threw it. I think he hit me with the ball, like yeah. <laughs> it was just good. He shot it too early, and like he shot it, which was obviously a problem. But whatever, go check that out. Norlander's got it. CBSSports.com. So earlier this week, Pac-12 released its schedule, and the first thing I noticed was that oh wow, Arizona doesn't have to go to UCLA or USC for people who don't follow that league too closely. Uh, at least according to the top twenty-five and one we do at CBS Sports. 
Um, Arizona's number two and could easily and reasonably be number one, but ranked number two in the preseason. USC's number 10. UCLA is number 20, and those are the only three Pac-12 schools we have ranked right now. So uh, Arizona doesn't have to play the other two ranked schools on the road. So my initial reaction to the schedule being released was, well, there's Sean Miller's fifth Pac-12 title. Go ahead and wrap it up because they just basically gave him a massive schedule advantage. He gets to play USC and UC, uh, USC and UCLA once. Both games are at home, and uh, that probably means they're going to uh, win the regular season title. To be clear, I would have picked Arizona no matter what the schedule looked like. I think they are far, far and away, uh, or at least considerably, uh, better than everybody else in that league, although I really, really like USC. But... The, the second thing I noticed, and this isn't anything new, but I think it was the larger point that I wanted to make in a column I wrote, was that this is crazy that Arizona and UCLA don't play twice every regular season. And I know that the Pac-12 has a scheduling rotation that's been in place, a schedule rotation that's been in place for a long, long time, but I don't care. Like It's a stupid way to do it because when you've got two big national brands, um, you should... Uh, you should maximize the the opportunities you have to put them on a court together. Like, you live on the East Coast. I live in the Central Time Zone. Uh, it ain't easy. We both have young children. It's not easy to stay up late uh, past midnight to watch basketball games, especially on weekdays. So you got to give me as many reasons as you possibly can. And the idea that they don't do that for UCLA, Arizona, the way the ACC does it for Duke, North Carolina, just seems bananas to me. Am I overstating it, or is that something the Pac-12 should look at? They should look at it. Now, yeah, there's a, uh, there's a 10-year cycle, um, and it, they, they lacked the foresight to realize that Arizona— I mean, w- even when the Pac-12 restructured to 14 teams, and when Utah and Colorado came in, and that's what triggered this new cycle, um, you had to realize that even if UCLA was in a down period uh, near the end of Howland's tenure, and even then they won, I think, the regular season championship in his final season, et cetera, yep. et cetera. Um, Arizona and UCLA are your two biggest programs. Uh, they have been. They always will be. And with that, if you could have arranged with the, with the idea that you want to give Pac-12 basketball as much exposure as possible, arrange them to always be home-and-home home partners. Instead, what the Pac-12 has done – is it want it, it's every every team plays certain teams with the travel partners like if you're local like USC and UCLA Arizona Arizona State Washington Washington State obviously those teams are always going to play each other twice but otherwise it's a six and four I'll I'll explain to you I'll read to you what the Pac-12 sent me because after this went up and Rob Doster over at NBC wrote a column critical of the Pac-12. Um, a Pac-12 official that sent me, he sent me this. When the conference expanded to 12 teams, a decision was made to stick to an 18-game conference schedule, which, by the way, was the right call. I think more than 18 isn't good for the sport. It was also determined that the most, by the way, that is probably going to change to 20, but whatever. Um, It was also determined that the most competitively fair schedule for each team would be ensure that that travel partner teams, parentheses, those in the same market, as I just explained, would continue to play each other twice every year, and that the balance of the conference schedule would be set via an equitable rotation of non-travel partner teams playing each other. This is, the language could be better, but whatever. And the last sentence is, as a result, the determined 10-year cycle, non-travel partner teams will play each other twice in six of those years, 
and once in four of them. So this right now for Arizona and UCLA is a cycle where they're only playing each other once. So as the schedule is set up, it's a case of bad timing. But if you want to go back to the very beginning, the Pac-12 should have considered we should be trying to do what a lot of these other schools are doing, a lot of these other leagues are doing. And both. And think about it, in football and basketball, when you even have rivals that might be in different divisions or I guess – I don't even – is the Big Ten still a division of football? I can't even keep track of this stuff anymore. Yes. But the point is – the point is they make sure – that they, they even football's even got to the point where, um, man, is it Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, the Bedlam game? I don't think that's even the last week of the season this this year. And they adjusted it because they did not want to have a situation where that game obviously has to be played and will be played in the Big 12 affords itself a true round robin. But they don't even want to have that be the last game of the regular season and then to have an immediate rematch in a conference championship game in football. So there's a lot of thinking by conference commissioners and ADs when it comes to this stuff. The Pac-12 just kind of slipped up a little bit. It's ripe for some criticism, but I understand it was also a case of bad timing this year. But it's not just bad timing, I don't think. I, I think it's also like a bad philosophy. In other words, like if I ran a league, what I would try to do every year is create as many interesting matchups as possible. And who cares about this, what, equity, whatever, like you mentioned? Mm-hmm. in the, in the, like, the NFL doesn't have a balanced schedule. Uh, college football leagues don't have balanced schedules. Like, you know, you know they're really – NBA doesn't have a balanced schedule. There really aren't balanced schedules almost anywhere. And so forget all that. Here's what I would do. I would look at it every preseason. And I know you got to work back early into the summer, but whatever. Like, there's a, there gets to a date where you kind of know who's supposed to be good on paper and who isn't supposed to be good on paper. And what I would do is say, okay, now let's, let's create as many – games between our projected good teams as possible because think of it in these terms we've got three ranked teams in the Pac-12 in the preseason it is Arizona and UCLA and USC you could possibly have six games between featuring preseason top 25 teams if you had UCLA USC twice um, UCLA Arizona twice and USC Arizona twice that's six games as it is we only get four You get UCLA, USC twice, then Arizona, UCLA, Arizona, USC. Why is that good for a league? It's not. And so if the goal is to create as many interesting games as possible for your basketball conference, uh, why not have that approach? Now, I know not all leagues have that approach. In fact, I'm not sure any leagues have that approach. But to me, it's the most practical way to do it. But I'll even stop short of that. Whatever your scheduling philosophy is, UCLA and Arizona need to be playing every year. Same way, no matter how the ACC handles scheduling, Duke and North Carolina are playing twice every year, no matter what. In football, in the SEC, no matter what else happens in that football schedule, Tennessee and Alabama, in opposite divisions, are playing every year. Why? Because they're big national brands that have history. And the SEC decided when they even split the divisions, no, you know, this is something we're going to protect. Tennessee, Alabama is going to play. They're going to play every year. Uh, this should be the same thing. And I don't understand why. Like, I, I get it that it's a, it's, a, it's a tool that's been in place for a long time. I just think it's, it's, it's a flawed approach to maximizing what you should be trying to maximize if you're the Pac-12. Because on the West Coast, there's probably three true national brands of men's basketball that you can put them on and people care whether they're great or just good. And two of them are in the Pac-12. It's Arizona and UCLA. And the other one's probably Gonzaga. 
So if you're the Pac-12, to not maximize the opportunities you have with those big national brands, I just think fundamentally is a mistake. I understand they're, they, they've they locked this in a long time ago and that they have a reason for doing it. They're trying to be fair to everybody. I just think if being fair to everybody strips you of a home and home between UCLA and Arizona, uh, you're doing it wrong. I'll tag it with this. Let's look at the American Athletic Conference, which has done a terrific job. All right, prior to Wichita State joining, who are the big programs? UConn, the flagship, obviously. SMU, been relevant. Cincinnati, historically, is it probably goes UConn, Cincinnati, and then if you want to say historically, maybe Temple, but SMU has been good in the past five years. Right? Historically, it would go UConn, Cincinnati, Memphis. Memphis, Memphis, right. But Memphis hasn't been good and relevant. What no. I'm getting at here is Wichita State has to play UConn twice. Right. Has to play Cincinnati twice. Right. Has to play SMU twice. And even has to play Temple twice, which maybe they might not be quite as good, but you even get a traditionally good program in there. The American Athletic Conference did Wichita State no favors, but also did what was best for the league in ensuring that it did not saddle Wichita State with two games only against Tulsa and ECU and Tulane. And even I'll even go further. They actually play UCF twice, which isn't traditionally a good program, but probably will be a tournament-level team this season. So... There, these leagues do have more flexibility than they maybe think they can allow, but going forward, you have to keep this in mind if you want to get the most mileage out of your conference if you're not the Big 12 or Big East, which obviously have round-robin schedules. Like I said, I mean, this is very basic math stuff. By doing it this way, you you only have four games in your league schedule between preseason top 25 teams. You could have had six. If you're just smart about it, you have six. And so uh, I'm not saying they got to blow up their – um, their approach today, but they'd be wise to revisit it. If you have UCLA and Arizona in your league and you're not having them play every single year, first at Poly Pavilion, then at the McKell Center, or vice versa, um, you, you just, you're not taking the right approach. Let's move on. Rick Patino has recently said, and you wrote about this, uh, it's over on the website, that he believes the one-and-done rule is going to go away. Do we believe he knows what he's talking about, or is he just, is he just talking? Listen... Patino just talks to talk a lot of the time. I mean, didn't he say he was going to retire like two years ago? And he's still going strong. Um, every coach, every, well every coach says they're going to retire. Do you see the latest? Like Bill Self says he doesn't no. know if he's going to coach till he's in, when he's sixty. Like they, did he say that? He said he doesn't know. Like I don't know if I'll still be doing this when I'm sixty. I think he's fifty four right now. They they all say that. Almost nobody walks away. Like actually walks away when they're still like rolling. Bob Stoops in football is a is a counter example. But, but for the most part, like these guys, they all think, man, I, there's no way. Like I've heard coaches say, man, if you ever well, – there was an old well, – this probably goes back 10 years. But there was an older coach. I don't even want to name him because I'm not trying to be mean. But there was an older coach, and he was like limping around at Peach Jam. And I was sitting with a guy who was in his like early 50s, right, a head coach. And he said, please, God, if you ever see me like limping around a gym like this, shoot me. Like, if, you, if I'm still doing it when I'm that age, like, please, just put a bullet in me. And we laughed and whatever. And guess what? He's still coaching today. You know, they, they, they none of them walk away. They, I mean, or they rarely do. So, anyway, continue. Um, yeah, you get that all the time. But at, Patino could be onto something. Silver wants to change the rule. I mean, two years. He, he said, and Patino, listen, Patino could be, be misconstruing this a little bit, but I also don't doubt who Patino is, how connected he is, and there are plenty of conversations that happen behind closed doors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but his, you know, 
his words were essentially saying, no, they're going to high schoolers are going to be able to declare for the NBA within the next two years because Adam Silver wants that. Again, obviously, the NBA Players Association has to agree to it. They have to uh, make amendments to the current collective bargaining agreement between the two unions. So I, I do think change is going to come. I am not convinced that high schoolers are going to be able to declare and be eligible to play in the NBA the way that it was for so long. I still think that there could be alterations to that model. But it was an interesting quote from Patino, who, by the way, has never had, and he's, these were his words, I, I guess I knew it, but I didn't really know it, know it, like I hadn't really truly ever thought about it. He's never had a one-and-done player, I guess, at Louisville. Um, and so he said that he does not dislike the current model the way that it is, but he does think that it's going to change. If that were to happen uh, by 2019, I mean, we talked about this you know, a couple weeks back, obviously changes the way college basketball operates on the whole, um, but I can't speak to whether he's you know, giving that information because he's got really good sources on it or it's just kind of Patino going Patino. I uh, get asked about this all the time, as you do, and I think my, my, my sort of place on this is um, – the same thing I say about transfer restrictions. When I say, you know what, I just want to do what's right for the student-athlete, what's fair for the student-athlete, and I'll work backwards from there. Um, same thing here. I fundamentally believe that if a prospect coming out of high school is so talented or awesome or whatever that if made available, an NBA franchise would be willing to use a draft pick on him and pay him millions of dollars, um, I, I, I think it's fundamentally right for that prospect to be able to – to be in that position. Um, I don't know if it's best for the NBA uh, because it, it places a, a lot of young guys in the league in roster spots and perhaps they're not ready for that. Um, I don't buy into the, well, you don't want to give these 18-year-olds millions of dollars. Like, shut up. Like, you let people get rich whenever they can get rich. Like, that's mm -hmm. not a valid excuse. Um, I don't know if it's great for the NBA. I don't know that it's great for college basketball because – Though it is kind of ridiculous having these guys on campus for eight months doing online classes half the time, if not the majority of the time. Uh, nobody really cares about that. People just care about college basketball. And uh, though I'm against the one-and-done rule, I'm not so ignorant that I don't recognize college basketball has benefited from it. It's awesome to have Kevin Durant in college for a year. You know, it's awesome to have Derrick Rose in college for a year. It's awesome to have Lonzo Ball in college for a year. And if that were no longer the case, uh, talents like those guys would just bypass college completely. Um, then, then, you know, we just have fewer, like, true future stars um, participating at the collegiate level, you know, at least for a year. On the other hand, college basketball would be fine. You know, we've been through this already. We never got to see Kobe Bryant. We never got to see Tracy McGrady. We never got to see Amari Stoudemire in college basketball. But, and you and I have talked about this before, and I think we're on the same page. The truth is this is a sport that will create stories and, and stars regardless of who's actually playing. Like some years it's going to be this amazing college freshman like Lonzo Ball. Other years it'll be Jimmer or, or uh, you know, J.J. Redick. It's always gonna, it's always going to be somebody. Somebody's always going to be having an unbelievable season. Somebody's always going to be you know, the best player at Duke in Kentucky. It might not be a future Hall of Famer if the one-and-done rule goes away, but somebody's still going to be the best player at Kentucky, and somebody's still going to be the best player at Duke, and college basketball will be fine. So uh, I'm for, like, uh, listen, I'll listen to a lot of different options, but uh, I just start at one place and work backwards. I, I think um, that, that high school graduates 
or just high school dropouts. I don't care. I, I think that young people should be, you know, they shouldn't be pushed toward college. I know like forced into it, but certainly pushed toward it when they don't want to be there and they don't necessarily need to be there. You know, there's a reason no other uh, sophisticated country does sports the way we do it. Like the like, can you imagine them saying, "Yeah, this Ronaldo guy's really super talented, but we think he needs to go, you know, take two English courses in an in, in college algebra for a year before he can make real big money playing soccer." Like that's bananas, and yet that is essentially how we handle elite level basketball talents in this country. So I'm I, I'm I'm for opening up the options, but. Um, I'll listen to a lot of different ideas on, on how you go about doing that. All that said, I don't know um, if it's actually going to be lifted anytime soon, although it is clear that Adam Silver has taken more interest in this issue than David Stern ever did. Yep. I mean, it's just kind of a wait and see. And the, uh, the next steps for those tracking the story, it's <clears throat> when will Silver speak next on it? And whenever he speaks next, what new information are we going to be provided? Because I do think this is something that, I mean, Silver right now is – between Woj's reporting on it and the general sense, I, in, in regards to the lottery, like he's he wants to fix the current lottery system. He's he's a very progressive p- commissioner, so I think the lottery is is what he wants to tinker with and adjust first, and then after that, I think it's gonna then it's like okay, now that we fixed how we're gonna select the kids, or at least change it, um, let's let's look at the format we have now and see if we want to alter that as well. So I think that that will happen in order, but I would think. Just because Silver's also not uh, media-verse, we will get another update from him in some capacity, I would expect, before the end of this year. And the last thing I wanted to touch on, and hopefully this is the last time we ever talk about Mitchell Robinson on this podcast. No guarantees, main GP. Uh, But he left Western Kentucky for good, uh, uh, presumably this time. Said he's just going to train for a year, then enter the 2018 NBA draft, like whatever. Uh, The whole thing's just a a disaster. Um, You know, like I have no problem with a young person saying, listen, I don't, I don't, I don't like the collegiate model. I feel like we're being exploited. I don't think student athletes get what we deserve. I don't like the restrictions. So I'm going to not play into that system. Like I know it'll be fine without me, but it's going to be fine without me. I'm not going to be involved. I'll just train for a year, sign with an agent and then enter the draft. I don't need college basketball. I, I think it would be actually interesting if somebody took that stand, made that point. Um, and if they did it, I would back them on it. I would say, good, good luck. And I hope it works out well because perhaps this will force some change that I think needs to come to the collegiate model. On the other hand, uh, keep in mind, that's not what Mitchell Robinson is doing here. This is not by choice as much as he's been forced into a bad situation, either because he made bad decisions or because he was guided by people who made bad decisions. Um, he should have never committed to Western Kentucky. He should have never signed with Western Kentucky. Should have never enrolled at Western Kentucky. And the reason is because he never wanted to really be at Western Kentucky. Uh, what his motives were to get him to to actually go through the process the way I just described it, um, I'll let people speculate on. But it seems quite clear and had seemed quite clear back since early July at the latest that he didn't have any interest in being a Western Kentucky Hilltopper. And yet, because he enrolled and got himself you know, stuck in a situation, his options were either to, to stay there where he didn't want to be or do what he's doing now. And I know there were other options like go overseas or whatever, but essentially 
Um, it's just a it's just a bad deal, and I hope it works out for him because you know he comes from like not great stuff uh, by all accounts, and I don't know that he's had the the best guidance um, you know throughout this process. I don't know that people have actually had Mitchell Robinson's best interest at, at heart as much as they might have had their own interest at heart. And I can see how you know a young person, you know, he's 17, 18 years old, can get you know can it's just very easy to you can be guided by wrong people and make stupid decisions and you don't realize it in time, but you, you, you probably will someday. I think that'll be the case for him. Um, but like, you know, I, at this point I just root for him because I'd hate to think that his career, um, could be damaged or even ruined because of stupid decisions he made when he was, uh, when he was a teenager. I, um, if I were advising him, I would have told him, yo, you're at Western Kentucky. You're stuck. I know you don't want to be here, but like go dominate Conference USA, win a bunch of games, and then just bounce, you know, just bounce as soon as it's over. But like people want to see you play. NBA wants to see you play. You'll probably be physically overwhelming for the competition in that league. Um, Like, hey, you're here. Go do it. Stick it out. Um, But he didn't want to do that. Um, I think that's the latest mistake that he's made, latest bad decision he's made. And I hope that he doesn't pay a big, big price for it uh, on draft night next June. Do you think he will? Well, I've got two thoughts, an opinion, and then a question. I'll fire back at you. Uh, one thought is there is definitely an element in play with this entire situation with Robinson and either Sansbury or the school um, that that clearly was not something he could overcome or was just standing in his way. Um, not sure what that is, but it would be really interesting to find out what it was. Another thought is I really hope <clears throat> Robinson isn't uh, the subject of a feature story five to seven years from now where he just never came close to making it and it's flamed out is in a, is in a dire situation. I just hope, I hope this does not, and I'm not saying that it will, I'm just saying I hope it doesn't lead to that kind of situation there where a couple bad decisions when he was 18 years old screwed up his college path, screwed up his NBA path, and now look where he is. I hope he's totally able to, uh, to overcome this. My opinion is that had he played even though I'm not as high on him as others, I think that had he played, played to expectation, done so well in Conference USA, he would have been a, a pretty much as close to a lock of a top 15 pick as I think as you could expect him to be. Uh, now that's not going to happen. So my my opinion on it that is that I think that he will drop into the mid to late 20s because of this, because of all of these issues. And my question, GP, is that whether you want to put yourselves in the shoes of an NBA general manager or however you want to look at this, given what Robinson has done and either been guided through or made his own decisions to, you know, vacillate, to waffle, to go back and forth, should this be something that costs him significant amounts of money and and spots in the draft by taking the route that he's decided to take? It would concern me if I were a general manager. Like, I'm about to invest, I'm about to spend a valuable pick and invest millions of dollars in a guy who has like made one bad decision after another and proved to be unreliable. You know, Western Kentucky was relying on him. He did make a commitment to them. Um, and then he just flaked on it over and over again. Again, the timeline is he enrolls late, leaves, visits multiple other schools, comes back, then leaves again. Like, that's a lot of, like, back and forth, back and forth. And if you take that mindset and apply it to other aspects of life, it can be uh, problematic. And so, absolutely, if I'm a general manager, 
um, I'm concerned. Like, why is this kid like? Why can't this kid stick to anything? You know, why why does he why does he want to be there and then not and then go back and then leave again? Like that would bother me, or at least it would be a concern. Which is ultimately why I would have advised Mitchell Robinson just stay where you're at because you're creating red flags for general managers who have the power to pay you millions of dollars. Um, it doesn't mean you can't alleviate their concerns between now and, and the draft, but you're creating another issue that could cost you a significant amount of money. Why do that? Just you'd be way better off. If the options at this point are leave Western Kentucky and come off like you're unreliable and all over the place and create a red flag for your, you know, as it relates to your uh, draft status, or just like, yo, tough it out, dominate Conference USA, then enter the draft, it would have been much wiser to just tough it out, stay at Western Kentucky, dominate CUSA, and then enter the draft. I think that's why this is a mistake because uh, if I were a general manager, it would concern me. It'd concern you too, right? Without a doubt. And look at it this way too. I mean, Robinson, a five-star prospect, but he's not a consensus top five in his class. You know, consensus top 15, sure. But he's now going to go from basically March of his senior year of high school until November of 2018, essentially, what, 19 months without playing a truly competitive uh, official game of basketball. I mean, that's that's something that will get, that should give anyone hesitation. Train all you want. That's fine. You can still maintain basketball shape, improve your skills. I get all that. But to go, that's a huge gap. It's not as it's not the same as if Bagley had decided to do something like this, right. where Bagley is seen as such a generational, no doubt about it, talent that he could almost afford to do that kind of thing if he wanted to. Robinson's still really good, and he's got undeniable height. You can't teach that, et cetera, et cetera. Don't get me wrong. But he's not on Bagley's level. I would I would suggest that he's not close to Bagley's level personally. And so I think that gap is also going to create a lot of questions. It it will be interesting because I yeah he's now, in theory he's now dropping off the radar here until we get to pre-draft stuff and and et cetera et cetera. And then, you know what team he goes to, how he can crack a roster remains to be seen. But it's a bad look. And perhaps although there's really no guarantees because honestly. Um, you you have players that make uh, baffling decisions at the college level in football and basketball frequently. I would say it's it's a cautionary tale, but really there's no there's no stopping or preventing something like this happening again in one, two, three, four years from now with another kind of player. Primarily because there are a lot of things that can influence a player's decision on where to go or to not go to school and how that player may or might not fit with the coaching staff, with the culture, where that school might be located. Um, part of me is surprised we don't see this a little more often, but I also think sometimes with five-star players, they simply do have the ability to suck it up, play that year. I mean, there are plenty, as GP has mentioned plenty of times, there are plenty of dudes who are five-star prospects who love school and are great at it. There are, there's no shortage of guys who do not like school, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. No one says that you have to love going to college. It's not a mandate uh, to be a member of this society, but plenty of them just, just do it because they know they got to do it, and it never gets to the point that it did with Mitchell. Um, he's not Marvin Bagley. Last time I saw him play, he was dominated by, by DeAndre Ayton. So he has some like natural, natural physical tools. Like He's super tall, and he's super athletic, and he could be a presence on the defensive end of the court, but he's awfully raw offensively. And that's not good, given the where where the NBA seems to be going. Like smaller, you know, every everybody's smaller, and everybody uh, everybody's smaller in the middle, or they don't mind being smaller in the middle. And you know, you want five guys on the court as often as possible who can all dribble, pass, and shoot. Um, you know, the the idea of just being a shot blocking, you know, f- you know, center 
with no offensive skills. There, I guess there's still a place for that guy in the NBA, but uh, it's certainly the game has changed in a way that I don't think is is uh, perfectly suited for Mitchell Robinson's skill set at this point. So um, there is a there's a chance where he could look up and, and go, what 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 in the world happened? That was a top ten national recruit ended up signing with a school and enrolling at a school that I didn't want to really go to. And now, you know, I'm a, I got, I just got picked 35th and I'm in the D league and what happened? I, I'm not predicting that, but I could certainly envision that. I would have rather seen him play again, uh, this college basketball season, uh, go to Western Kentucky and dominate conference USA just due to conference USA. Uh, what Devin Downey once did to the SEC mm. shouts to Devin Downey shouts to Chester, South Carolina shouts to Terry MFN. Remember, you can subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast via iTunes. So please do that. Thank you for listening. We're going to be back next week. Till then, take care.